To fuck around is human. To find out is divine. This is the I Refuse Podcast. <sighs> Welcome back, everybody. Mm. To the I Refuse Podcast. It is I, Mr. Fox. Don't mind me. Today was leg day. And the thing about leg day at the gym, when I think about it before going, I'm like, God damn it. Today is the day. And the thing about leg day is that it requires everything in your whole body. Your whole body is impacted by this thing. But it's a necessary evil because out of all the weightlifting exercises and the weightlifting days, you know, arms, legs, chest, back... The driving force for me going into leg day is that I have to remind myself that if I do it long enough each time that I do it, I stand to lose the most calories. And that's outside of doing like the bike and the treadmill. Like if I was to do this for up to an hour on a regular basis every week, I can stand to lose a thousand calories. But you know, I'm not trying to look like a crackhead in 2024. I just want to look good and feel good. And keep the blood flow going. Keep the testosterone intact. What little I have of it. Just have an overwhelming of wellness. Glad you can make it back to the IFU's podcast if you're returning. I know the last episode was a bit of a doozy. But this time we're going to try to just focus on some of the silly shit that's been happening. If this is your first time to the IFU's podcast, welcome. I'm Mr. Fox. So glad you can join us. You know, the word of mouth and the promotion and the tweeting from the podcast, Twitter page, at I Refuse Podcast, clearly has been working. We've been making the impressions. I am most proud of all that we've been doing the last five five seasons. In addition to what we're doing at the I Refuse Podcast after dark, and the usual suspects. New episode just dropped yesterday over there. Without further ado, (laughs) we must get into the nonsense. First things first, as I always say, honestly, when I'm not up here, I'm just minding my good old African-American business, sticking to my little day job, going to the gym, eating right, staying out of traffic, just Going out the house for the important stuff and coming back, right? Yet and still, even as we are going through 2024, the madness just continues. So, first things first, like I've said, Jennifer Lopez, I was down on the bird app. And saw a trailer for what looked like 
a whole lot of madness. So apparently Jennifer Lopez, in addition to dropping new music still, which is just mystifies me because who's buying it? Her ninth album, which is entitled only a direct sequel to This Is Me Then, which was a 2002 album, which I think was like her third album. The ninth album will be called This Is Me Now. This Is Me Now is coming out February the 16th. And the movie or the the film, This Is Me Now, A Love Story, will be coming out... Hmm. Soon, somewhere. So the mu- this musical short film, whatever, is an Amazon Prime exclusive, directed by Dave Myers. So in the trailer that dropped five days ago, there are musical numbers. You know, essentially an extension of what she does during the halftime show at every live performance is always boom, boom, cat. But in the trailer, she's literally falling for and with different men. And I said to myself, what an honor it is for us to not only have more J-Lo music, but more J-Lo films she's where she's essentially playing a woman that goes through men quicker than a laxative this is quite honestly the most leoist thing from a leo and this isn't to really you know totally undermine and negate you know, Jennifer Lopez's impact and influence. You know, the girl is clearly talented. However, you know, although she's had some hits and stuff at the beginning of her musical career, and we knew that, you know, she was just trying to be a multifaceted, triple threat kind of deal. I think where a lot of us jumped off the bus was when we got wind of her true vocals. We got wind of the fact that Ashanti was doing the heavy lifting on the big songs from the remix album. And how the the reoccurring theme from that era of her career to this era of her career is that when it comes to the first single or the first couple of singles, Jennifer Lopez is essentially just the shell on the lead vocal with a black female artist doing the heavy lifting on the songs. You know, aside from 
Ain't It Funny, the remix. Aside from All I Have. One. Yana Crawley. Came out recently. And said, you know, that's my voice on Get It Right. That's that's mostly my voice on Get It Right. And just like everything else we point out when it comes to an artist or a vocalist credibility, we have to have like a real discussion around these kind of antics and the ghosting the ghost vocals and you know the the attempts to kind of lower the volume on the black female vocalist lead vocals and turn up the volume on the vocalist of the main artist who we all know can't sing a lick and what trips me out is how they're trying to sell this um, musical film. An intimate, fantastical, and narrative-driven reflection of Lopez's journey to find love. Described by Yahoo News as an ode to Lopez's journey of self-healing and everlasting belief in fairy tale endings. Oh, boy. Like, <laughs> leave it. Leave it up to the media to try to sell us on the shit. Like, those of us that have been outside, and those of us that have seen Gone Girl, are aware of the real reason she got back with a uh, one Ben Affleck, and even allegedly, even if you do. This is the same person that kind of like stressed Miss um, Garner out. You know, we go we go pretty well for Alias over here. Like y'all wasn't outside where Alias was out. Um, yeah, we kind of go up for her. And you know, I know I said, you know, I, we touch on serious subjects sometimes, but like, what is what is going on here? Like we've. We've never seen Jennifer Lopez, never saw her or viewed her as, like, a musical girl. And at this point in the career, it's like, I had to ask, who's still buying the music? And is she, is this... An attempt to like revisit the benefit thing. I hope the God that we do not get another. Um, yo, what if we got a, a sequel to um, Geely? Like, there's there's no turn, no stone unturned, no mountain too high, <laughs> no valley too low. When it comes to two Leos together. Because one thing they're always going to do 
is make it about them and dedicate and devote all the energy and time to make themselves look good. Like, I like when was she ever a musical film girl? I'm just curious. Is this is this gonna like open the doors for her being on Broadway? Cause girl, you're like the Latin Sierra at this point. Now I'm a I'm a I'm gonna see what the album gives. Like when it comes out on February the sixteenth, because not for nothing, this is me then was was cute. Like her first couple of albums came out around the time that I was in the military. And she was, you know, part of that whole MTV TRL crew. You know, that you know, that was that's that's very important. And some of her earlier stuff with the help of like a thousand people on the song and behind the boards to make it the best that they can possibly make it. She's got she's got some songs, she's got some material. But I'm just like, who who is outside now for it? And are we even really using Amazon Prime for their um for their their media, for their movies and television shows? Like they can barely make a show last a season, let alone two. And then got the nerve to want to charge us like Damn near $20 a month. For like two good shows every six months. You know, they had a, Amazon Prime had us in a chokehold for a bit with the um, Sissy SpaceX and um, J.K. Simmons show. About. You know, some suburban couple, middle-aged couple that just so happens to have like a, like a space time continuum kind of thing in their basement that essentially opens once they started using it or, you know, getting, you know, getting contact with it. It just opened the door for a lot of trouble. Mainly, like, time runners and travel runners. Like, there's a... It it was starting to get really good, and we were hooked. And then just... There was nothing new that came out of it after that. I'm still side-eyeing Amazon Prime about that. But, it's like... This is what I'm talking about. You know... I'm sure the people over at Amazon... The powers that be can give two shits about the platform as a whole. I mean, $16 a month, you do get a a lot covered. But most of us are using the website to buy and sell shit. And we get a lot of benefit out of that. Like, you get a lot of your stuff sooner if you have Prime. But can we get something on the the TV movie music side where it's like 
you got something like Hunters. You had Man in the High Castle, which two really good shows. Um, but something somewhere along the lines, you know, once you get to a gap in production, like you have the first season in 2018, and then the second season doesn't come until 2021, it's like, bitch, we forgot that y'all was y'all were even here. So I don't know how much they were banking on Jennifer Lopez to the point that Amazon Prime was like, you know what, for the second quarter, 2024, those of you that are not familiar with fiscal terminology, we're going to give you a world premiere of a musical film starring one Jennifer Lopez in support of her ninth album. Which is a direct send-up sequel, per se, to her 2002 album. I don't know. It's shit like this that makes me want, that inspires me to ask you guys, are we living in a simulation? Is this all a simulation? Is this what, this is what we're doing? You know, I love, love music. I love movies. I love what people are doing sometimes. Uh, you know, it, it when it comes to having a companion film filming piece to go in support of the album. But a musical film, and we know you don't have, like, the vocal range that be, that just says, oh, this is really going to eat. But look, I'm, not, I'm no Benny Medina. I'm no Sony Entertainment. But apparently, the first half of 2024 is looking to be a theme. Because not only is J-Lo doing this, but 21 Savage is also doing this. So recently, 21 Savage released his third studio album, American Dream, which I haven't listened to yet. Um, I'm not sure I could say that I'm a 21 Savage fanatic. You know, he has some songs I bump to, some solo stuff. I mean, when Her Loss dropped, um, that's probably an album I played more times than I want to admit because it's so misogynistic. But I've, I don't look to music to serve, you know, some kind of moral or ethical high ground. Um, I will be the first to admit that we're definitely in the corny era of these, this current generation of rappers. But I also know that trolling is what sells. So anyway, before I even knew that he was coming out with the album, I caught wind that he was coming out with the biopic 
And I didn't know it was a full film. I, I honestly thought it was going to be a sketch. Because Childish Gambino is going to play 21 Savage in the movie. Right. Like, I saw the trailer and I thought, oh, this is, you know, this is just going to be a sketch. This is something to take seriously. You know, we've seen this before. And, you know, it's it's part of the promotion for the album. Well, Color Me shocked that, no, there's actually a full-fledged movie coming out. A biopic of 21 Savage's uh, life called The American Dream, The 21 Savage Story. So they say it's a star-studded film about his life, career, and immigra- immigration struggles. Do y'all remember, and it was such a time, like, we were throwing ourselves out the window when we discovered that 21 Savage is from London, and then we instantly thought, oh, this motherfucker's British. But... Every time he speaks, there's no British accent. So I'm thinking, okay, it's it's very well possible to be from someplace or um, your origin be someplace, but you're raised, you being raised in Atlanta just explains so much. Like he probably was in London all of about four or five months. He probably moved. He probably moved to Atlanta before he got to school grade age, and all he's known is Atlanta culture, United States culture, and being part of that. So at first, I was like, "That would be dope," because we haven't had like a British rapper make it. In such a major way. Not even Miss Dynamite. I know I just aged myself by dropping that name. But. That was such a wild time before the pandemic. Where we were just like. Why isn't this motherfucker not speaking in late. 16th century. 17th century. British. Verbiage. Like. Hello. How art thou? I am Lannister Savage the Third. Like, give me Bridgerton, right? Give me Bridgerton first season. You are with a dame of the night. Y'all are traipsing through the castle hallways. She's got her her hoop, corset, dress, powdered wigs. You got the, you got the chaps on the the jacket, the the breasted, just everything. Like, give me, give me medieval times, but for real, for real. Lannister, Savage, the twenty first. 
How art thou? Please come forth, milady. Twine good day in the courtyard. Bust that pussy open, bitch. And she would do it. You know, like, this is what I'm thinking. In, what was it, 2018, 2019? Where, you know, we discovered this motherfucker originated from London. And you talking about how much you've been through a lot. I listened to that album. But here we are. Of all the people, I really want them... If this biopic is truly a biopic, they would not skip over that part. I mean, I'm curious of to get more context to how he ended up getting shot like multiple times when he was like a teenager. And how how deep down into the drug game was he? You know what I mean? And the immigration struggles, because I'm like, if you're from if you're from London you would automatically have citizenship there and if you were raised here for X amount of years wouldn't you have citizenship here too? Unless they were trying to pull some kind of like ice game and they were like, Oh, you've been here all your life, grew up here 20 some years, now we gotta like send your ass back or was it something deeper where it was like the government's gonna intervene you, cause nobody's here for two damn decades on a green card like and they not, cause I know that shit kind of expires a lot sooner so I'm, I'm a my interest has kind of peaked a little bit since talking about this American dream thing even though I had to ask myself, what has he done that requires a biopic? And Donald Glover is playing you? Like, huh? I mean, not for nothing, I kind of, I got to give y'all, you know, Two thumbs up, you know, this is this is pretty clever, a clever promotional tool where the trailer doubles as a music video for the new song that's off for the new album. And that he will have Donald Glover and the actor from Stranger Things, Caleb McLaughlin, playing him at two different stages of his life. Like Aren't you currently in the second stage of your life? I don't know. I don't, Because when I saw Donald Glover, and I saw, you know, as 21 Savage, and I saw the promotional poster, and I, I was just like, you can't tell me this isn't like a mad TV sketch. You've got to be shitting me. And Donald Glover probably went into it thinking, oh, this is just this is just a missed opportunity for Atlanta before it went off the air. Like, Atlanta, that show could have went on for like two or three more seasons. Because I'm telling you, 
so much material has come out during the pandemic that Atlanta could have benefited from. But this is where we are. This is where we are. That musical artists are creating movies and musical films as a companion piece to their album. So, apparently, moving on to the next thing, this definitely was something that supported the the question I keep asking y'all of, are we living in a simulation? Once again, I was minding my African-American business, and I first caught when that one Richard Simmons, who doesn't bother anybody, has been under the radar for so long that people thought something happened to him, decided to, to come out his house a little bit and share with the rest of us that he feels some kind of way that they are doing an unauthorized movie on him. So apparently, one Pauly Shore will be portraying Richard Simmons in a new short film called The Court Jester. Let's see. The new short, The Court Jester, written and directed by Jake Lewis. The 10-minute project premiered last night at Cabin in Park City, Utah, near the Sundance Festival. Um, Let's see. The film in its entirety can be seen on the Lewis Brothers' YouTube channel. A short film. Richard Simmons came out of his cave and decided, I guess, to respond and like it was going to be a full movie. First of all, you got Pauly Shore playing you, so we're totally going to be unserious about this. But let's take a pause for a minute and talk about Pauly Shore. Just like, you know, the beginning of J-Lo's musical career is imprinted in part of my life, by way of MTV, TRL, that whole pop resurgence in the early 2000s. Earlier than that, we had, in the early 90s, a Pauly Shore overload. In less than five years, I saw Pauly Shore in... At least eight or nine movies. Mostly where he was the lead. Um, or was an ensemble piece. Or he had a cameo. I believe the first movie I saw him in was Class Act. It was it was a kid and play movie. Um, kind of brief, but I remember him. And he was he started off as like the the hippie curly haired like surfer boy numbskull kind of thing. And I was like, okay, what up, buddy? Um, then I saw him in I think Encino Man, 
I think he was in Airheads. Um, but he started to do have his own movies where he was the lead. And I don't care what anybody says. Son-in-law, hands down, the best cinematic masterpiece ever in life. You've heard it here, folks. Son-in-law, where it was him and I think Tiffany Amber Thiessen. I haven't seen a movie in a long-ass time. Best movie ever. Um, And then he kind of, like, disappeared by the late 90s. Like, out of movies. Like, none of his movies were, like, ultra-successful. But he had a he had a good cute little run, um, rivaling like Chris Farley, you know, God rest in peace, and even like David Spade for a bit. Um, but Paulie Shore, I don't think, was somebody that actually needed, really needed any of this. Like his mom and dad ran and owned the comedy store, so in a way, he kind of comes from money. But when you think about it, you know, as much as we revere, like, 90s comedians and stuff, and we were just talking about, you know, Mark Curry and stuff, I think, on the last episode. You know, when we think about all the things that comedians have now, as far as access to blowing up, and some comedians getting those opportunities like out out of the gate, like whether they've been, they say they've been working at it for 10 years in different facets, different venues or different avenues, or they just started like last week and got a Netflix special the following, you know, the following day that's coming out. They didn't have like the Netflix or Hulu or an Amazon Prime back then. It was literally just doing all their work on the road in any venue and just working their material out and maybe just maybe getting a half an hour on HBO or half an hour on Comedy Central or Comic View. And then it's on to the next thing. But Pauly Shore, I've never seen him do stand-up. I've never seen him on HBO or Comedy Central prior to doing, you know, getting all these movies. So it could be, it's easy to say that, you know, oh, he's a a Nepo baby. And that would have been totally fine by me. But as of late, the last couple of years, you know, Polly Shore kind of pops up on, you know, a show here and there, says his piece, and goes on about his, his merry way. So when I saw that this was coming, I was like, oh, this could be big. This could be big because just like Pauly Shore was a staple in the 90s, so was Richard Simmons. And Richard Richard Simmons is one of those characters that, like, we, none of us can really pinpoint his origin it's like one day you woke up you poured your coffee you went to the television turned on i don't know montel or ricky lake or sally jesse Raphael, and out comes this guy in in spandex striped spandex shorts or 
a onesie or a, a cat suit with like a halter top on, big curly hair, ready to like get the audience psyched and bought into whatever hell's going on. And he's like dancing with like 50 middle-aged white women and doing the stair stepping on the Rosie O'Donnell show and then having like all these endorsements and he's got the 1-800 numbers and the products and he's just everywhere and people are jazzed up. And then at some point after about the fourth or fifth year, you sitting back like, he still looks and is built the same. So is this like the only exercise he gets all year is coming out here for like one television segment, but you realize it's more a personality thing and the being the hyper motivated, energetic and getting that kind of energy out to people and before you know it, everybody was in stair-stepping class. And people buy into that stuff. And then he, you know, he kind of disappears. And it's like, do we send out an APB for Richard Simmons? And I thought, let's also put out an APB for Susan Powder. You know, the whole fitness guru thing was a big thing. And then it's like, before you know it, you see them more doing acting or being a personality on sitcoms than you actually see them doing their own thing. You know, but like, uh, what's that lady? What's that lady that had the, um, oh, Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda's Bill and Wick was acting, but yet in the 80s, she had that, that those fucking workout tapes and that, that thing that you put between your legs to tighten your thighs, and she had uh, records about breastfeeding and being a mother, and, like, you didn't see Susan Powder or Richard Simmons, like, build on that that TV persona into like all these different kind of things. And then Richard Simmons just kind of disappeared. You know, the same guy was telling women, you know, throw the cake out. Don't eat the cake. You can go with this uh, low-calorie cottage cheese. And my black ass was like, cottage cheese snakes. As soon as you take the lid off of the container, cottage cheese stinks. And even if you put shit, put that shit into stuff, you still know it's going to be there. It stinks. The texture, ill. Like, how do white people eat this? But when you're Richard Simmons and he's shouting at you through your television screen, and he's in the Nutty Professor shouting at Sherman Clump. And he's on the Rosie O'Donnell show breathing his hot, probably unbrushed breath on Celine Dion's neck as she's trying to eat cake. Because, you know, she was looking like she needed to eat something back in the 90s anyway. 
but he's throwing cake on the floor and cheesecake and said, don't eat that cheesecake. Eat this head of lettuce and you'll lose weight and do 5,000 steps a day and you'll, you'll get there. He almost had me uh, wrapped up in his game and I was only eight or nine years old. But to call a 10-minute short film a biopic, that's that's just not... But I get what Paulie is saying, you know what I mean? He He's he's still giving Richard Simmons reverence and respect and what his representation meant to mental health, getting people in shape, and being your authentic, silly self. And quite as it's kept... This will be great for Paulie Shore to get back out there. I'm like, if Brendan Fraser can come back and come back strong, so can Paulie Shore. Now, things from the 90s and the 80s are making their way back. If Brendan Fraser can come back after being blacklisted for speaking his truth, so can Paulie Shore. And and you you've been seeing for a while. You know, when you turn on like an FX show, a, dr- a drama or something of some kind, and you're pointing at the TV like Leo DiCaprio in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like, isn't that old girl from Moesha? Isn't that old girl from Hang on Mr. Cooper? Isn't that the girl from The Girlfriends? Isn't that the guy from Living Single? Where has he been? You know, you just you're just pointing. And it's like, this is what a feel-good moment is. Right? Right. So, the 10-minute film is out. It follows an ignored, belittled segment producer named David who has a life-changing encounter with Simmons while working backstage at a popular Ellen-like talk show. During the brief run-in, Simmons encourages David to love himself and find moments of peace in his everyday life. If you like yourself, you're going to be fine, and I have a sense you haven't been the kindest person to yourself lately, have you? But if I'm wrong, just say, Richard, you're nuttier than a squirrel turd. What's even better is that Shore also attached to play Simmons in a separate full-length feature film currently in development from Warner Brothers. So it looks like we may actually get a, a full-length film based on Richard Simmons's life starring Pauly Shore, which is which will be so good. Cause A, a lot of us out here that have been outside for the last thirty years love an underdog feel good story, starring an underdog actor, underrated comedic genius that people dismissed in this heyday. Like I wouldn't be surprised if he too starts winning awards based off of this film, just like Brendan Fraser won his award for the elephant. Or for the whale. Sorry. Um, But, you know, Simmons did renounce the forthcoming film in a Facebook statement. I'm going to try to do my best Richard Simmons impersonation. (laughs) Hi, everybody. You may have heard they may be doing a movie about me with Pauly Shore. I've never given my permission for this movie. So don't believe everything you read. I no longer have a manager and I no longer have a publicist. I just try to live a quiet life and be peaceful. Thank you for all your love and support. How was that? Was that good? 
In response, the Wolper organization issued a statement that the film aims to pay tribute to Simmons' life and work. Either way, I'm just, I'm, I'm all the way here for it. That would totally be a vibe. If all the 90s, well, most of the good 90s actors, you know, long forgotten, just all have a comeback in 2024. So before I get up out of here, I have two more things. And then I'll just, I swear I'll get out of your hair for this week. (laughs) If y'all are on your best behavior the next five or six days. So one of our prior episodes this season, we made mention of this movie that's due to come out, I believe in March, called The American Society of Magical Negroes. Now, if you want contact, you'd have to go back to the episode, which I believe I talked about it two two episodes ago um but it's there as to what i'm referring to so i'm circling back around on this episode because while i'm aware that we can't we can't stop it at this point and it's coming whether we like it or not there is Certainly, there's certainly a um, a foot and mouth moment that occurs in promotion of a movie where you know we you know the actors or the creatives that be just can't stick within the confines of keeping the answer short to the questions when they're sitting with media outlets. They just give too much of their personal opinions, and with it, their true tone comes out, and it just it just is turning a lot of people off more to seeing the movie. So I'm going to play you a clip in a minute where it's one Justice Smith who plays the lead, in this movie, um, Justice Smith is of multiracial origin. The movie itself is written by a comedian that is not black, not even a little bit, from Indiana. David Allen Greer plays the one of several magical Negroes in this movie. Now, if you're curious as to what's the big deal and why it's problematic, I went to great detail as to why a couple of episodes ago on the podcast. But where we are right now is what Justice Smith has to say during during his uh, interview with Variety magazine and how he says it. I'm going to play the clip, and then I'll come back. When you're doing a lot of the focus screenings... Yeah, yeah. yeah that's what I get to, yeah. yeah. Um, um, there were black people who were 
triggered by by seeing something that they weren't ready to admit in themselves that they were like i've never made space for white people in this way i don't i don't understand this experience and then there were black people who were like this is me even last night i talked to a couple of influencers and they're like this is me like i like this is what i've That's had to I do to grow up in my environment <laughs> but it, i love the way it showcases how we're not a monolith you know yeah, yeah like yeah. this oh. this piece of black art is so is so singular and like i i think controversial because it's expanding like what black art can be and, and it's talking about such a specific side of blackness, such a specific side of survival that I don't know if we've, we've seen before. This really, like, microaggressive, like, corporate racism, you know? Like, I, I did like this thing because I've seen it and experienced it so many times. So when the Asian actress, An Lee, when, when, when you talk to your uh, co-worker and, she, and he says... No, she's white. You go, yeah. no, no, no. I think she's white, so she's white. So it comes off. Because we've yeah, seen yeah, that. Yeah. We've yeah. seen when, when O.J. Simpson was first being pursued by the police, the first 48 hours, white people were apologizing to him. <laughs> the district attorney was on TV going, please, O.J., we love you. You're our hero. Please, if you can you come by the police station? In 48 hours, they're like, Blackie, get your ass <laughs> here. Same thing with Tiger Woods. Mm. When Tiger Woods first burst onto the golf scene, all the white people, a lot of white people, not all of them, were saying, well, he's really not black. He's quieter than black, so he's kind of on our team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then when he fucked up, he's like, he is... Yes. Well, it's, the, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's conditional, right? It's, mm-hmm. part of what, it's part of what the that idea yeah. is, right? And it's like, you know, the, the on Lee's character is, is okay with Jason until she strays just the slightest mm-hmm. bit outside of making him comfortable. And then all of a sudden that, that, uh, that offer of assimilation is revoked. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's, it's, it's a myth. It's, you a, it's like, yeah. you all witness that. I have a past yeah. because I'm not you. <laughs> and then it comes for that person yeah. and then they're thrown back. It's, 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 this, it's this promise that palatability will save you. Yeah. And a lot of us believe that. Yeah. Um, and I think this movie shows that it's like, no. Yeah. It's like yeah. the, 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 um, the threshold keeps changing. The, like, like the definition of what is acceptable will keep changing to keep you down. Yeah, yeah. So in the clip, you know, it's the Kobe guy that wrote and directed the movie it's justice smith who is the male lead in the movie and it's dave allen greer who's also in the movie as his magical negro guide here's the thing you know when it comes to one's experience a black person's experience in white spaces you know, it's a it's a generational thing, and, you know, what I've found is that the, the social media influencer and the content creator that's all of about 25, 30 years old doesn't live in society with context in mind. Like, they don't... A lot of them honestly believe that the here and now experience that they are experiencing, somebody else older than them hasn't already experienced, and they don't acknowledge that there is a longstanding history in this country when it comes to 
microaggressions, um, when it comes to racial discrimination, racial bias, implicit bias, confirmation bias, prejudices. And then on top of that, here you have actors who, and, and this is a theme I started picking up on with, you know, with Jonathan Majors, where you have black actors who believe because they grew up or, um, I guess, ascended into spaces with white people and you know, professionally as actors and workshops and communities and stuff like that. They come out, they come to us and they're like, you know, well, I was always felt like I was different. And I think on some level they have some expectation that because they're in these spaces that they're, they're special or they're not, going to be treated differently because they're black and you know that goes on you know when you think about it it goes on that that lower level of awareness because you know you're in this bubble surrounded by white people other white actors and you carry yourself and speak in a way similar to them and you think, oh, well, they're your equals. Well, Jonathan Majors is recognizing and realizing that hopefully that he never was. Um, because just like we're taught to believe that just because my friends here love me and accept me and stuff like that, the next person won't. Like, we're told that it's ignorant, it'll be ignorant of us to go out and believe that the rest of the world views us and sees us as equals, like the people over here do. And then what's rubbing people, some of the people the wrong way about what, of the overall conversation that's going on in this clip is this narrative that black people don't like the movie or premise because we're not smart enough or too ignorant to understand. And I really want people to get out of their out of their own way when it comes to because we made something that's so different or we think is so different than everything else that's out there that you won't get it and you won't see it. But here's the gag. Those of us that have been dealing with it the longest are also aware that racism and prejudice and bias are not dead. People are becoming, I guess, to 
to their perception or self-delusional grandizement that they're craftier at uh, at showing it because they think that we're not going to put it to you know figure it out. It's it's almost like a backhanded superiority superiority dance, and there's nothing that a biracial, multiracial black kid who who essentially in this clip just ten, just blends into the background all of about 20, 25 years old can tell me about, you know, my experience. And as somebody that's in his 40s that has not only seen the OJ chase that David Allen Greer mentions in the clip, but saw the trial at when I was like 10 or 11 years old, saw the Rodney King beating, saw the murder of Latasha Harlins, saw the Los Angeles riots, um, saw the handling of Tiger Woods um, after or during and after his his golden boy era era as the top golfer in the con- you know in the in the world how all those people that came to revere him even as most black people ridiculed him because he came off more Asian than he came off black how everybody just essentially all those those white people that came to all the games and you know clapped as he got you know PGA jacket after PGA jacket just all disappear once, you know, the cheating and him getting beat down with the ball, uh, the golf club by his wife and just the spiral. Like, it's not, people don't crowd around us for us. Like, white people crowd around us to, for themselves. Like, they're, you got to understand that, like, when it comes to, like, sports and stuff, like, they don't come down there to, um, to celebrate us. They're there for the game. Like, it's, it's all about, you know, the love of the game and everything and we're all a family until we do something that they don't agree with. And then you have to actually factor in... You know, the the harassment, you know, they come to the the sidelines of the court game and wear T-shirts um, taunting us at our jobs over uh, tweets and the the response is tenfold greater than the situation and there's no pushback on that kind of harassment when it's them, yet we're expected to fold because it's us. But our white counterparts don't face the same consequences. It's the racism and the prejudice and the bias rears its 
ugly head. The moment the same the same white people that have been around us for X amount of years in our house, breaking bread with us, laughing and smiling in our faces, will flip and take some moral high ground and have all this sudden energy to play advocate and bring about change more in their favor. And and what's not a problem before is a problem now. And yet we're expected to, at all times, make them comfortable for the sake of the kingdom. And we're often left holding the shit end of the of the deal. Like I, th- I th- believe that the turning point for a lot of us, especially those of you in your twenties and and thirties, who think, oh well, you know, I'm I'm part of the you know this this acting culture or this performance culture, so you know. I'm different. Well, let a rumor spread. Or, you know, if it doesn't spread then, but it comes out after you've made it in Hollywood, you made a couple of Rocky movies, you're the new golden boy, everybody loves, you know, your physique and, you know, your acting may be dry as sandpaper, but they like seeing you move. And... If nothing happens when you're on like a smaller TV show, but shit starts to pop off on the streets just by pure quote-unquote coincidence while you're on your third or fourth Rocky movie, just before the conviction comes out or the, the jury decides, Marvel done already sent a tweet. You're being dropped from every single movie that was supposed to come out that we didn't even know you did. But if you're white, they'll just reassign you to a a different movie. This is a consequence for white comfort. So when you have this movie coming out where... You want us to believe that this is a comedy or a satire of some point of some kind. This is why we're not here for it. And quite as is kept putting on a narrative that says that we won't get it, or in his words, it's not palpable to us because you want us to believe that we don't experience it. 
or 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 you know the the kids your age or you know the people in your culture and your environment as an actor over there which is its own bubble void of any reality or void of any accountability to what's going on and how it affects you because oh they treat you good in this bubble yeah they they treat you or tolerate you just as just as best until they've heard otherwise someplace else. And now it's uh you know, we're we're better we are we're better than this this one black person. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've experienced it with I've experienced it in my in my own life. Like wh- what's going on here? You know, like the lead actor is of a generation that just thinks or assumes because they have it pretty good that everybody else does. And that because they, you know, one or two people in your circle or your bubble treats you well, that you couldn't possibly see it. Yeah, when it's time to have the conversation, this is the narrative you want to put out. Nah, I'm good. I mean, because there's nothing that a multiracial person with a super cuts haircut can tell me. And it's already a slippery slope to play satire, comedy, dramedy, or rom-com or whatever, to play with dangerous tropes in African-American history. Especially when it's in the history of this country. Very, very dangerous. I think what the overall consensus and the frustration that people watching this clip have is... These three guys are trying to play it like, oh, this is the first time. Like, this is, this is, this is a a sketch and a surprise and, you know, they're acting like this is some kind of shocking revelation that black people don't like being stereotyped. This is... The way this rollout is going and the approach that these three are taking with this movie, and this is aside from the trailer that we saw a couple of months ago, the way that they're going about this, it's actually going to do more harm than good. Because, again, it's from the perspective of 
people not acknowledging the history and not and and just acting like this is all new to us like you're you're really just playing in our faces like have you not been outside lately Like, it's gotten to the point, and it's it's so glaringly obvious for so many years that the success of movies you you see the num you see the the audience come out in droves to movies where the black person is a superhero, the black person is magical the black person is strong the black person is confident the black person is and this is above and beyond creating producing um portraying images that are not servants that are not slaves although there are some stories that are too shocking true life stories too shocking to not be made into a movie you know it's just you know we just get tired sometimes it's like how can you not how can you be of the same system the same industry and not know that maybe we should not put out on tv you know across tv across movies across streaming platforms like 10 or 15 slavery movies. That and can we at least raise the bar and and maintain a standard that puts our portrayals and our performances on equal footing so that they that we can be seen as equals in prominence in power in pay. So we're not constantly having the same discussions and the same arguments and, you know, putting our blood, sweat and tears into something and not even making a fourth of what our, our co-stars are making. Like the last thing we're going to do in this lifetime, at any point, is to listen to people who just got to blackness. You're all of about 20, 25 years old. Your first major role is this movie. And you're going to sit up here in front of all these white people's faces and Position yourself as though you're the mouthpiece for all black people. If we want other people to not treat us like a monolith, we got to stop talking like we're a monolith. When clearly your experience differs from mine. And more than likely, there were no people that looked like me 
in that writer's room or part of the production staff that made like because it, it, it there's no way you can be, you can convince me that people that look like me looked at this and was like yeah let's green like this yeah let's 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 put this right on through and then you have this kid who can really only speak from his experience but choosing to speak like he speaks for the rest of us. Then you have David Allen Greer, whom I have the utmost respect for, given, you know, the level and the range of talent that he has. And I can say that, unfortunately, Hollywood is not using him. I can't think of one single movie or television show or medium that is a reflection of his talents and his range. Because trust and believe, his first job was not living color. But the the pedigree, right? The pedigree, and I'm sure he probably went into this with well intentions and you know some a breath a breath and the depth of um, what can I do with this as a creative? What can I do with this? And he's very, while he's very much, he's very much a uh, comedic genius that, you know, like I said, there hasn't been a project that's tapped into all that he could bring to the table. He's still of the acting world and still of a world in the universe and maybe in his adult life or in its his entirety of the totality of his life that is not in the the black experience and now more than ever we are seeing more and more people that look like me getting their wake up calls who I'll theorize once thought, oh, you know, I'm in these circles. I'm cool. Now, each year we we're faced or we see examples of people that work their way up into those circles only to realize that the moment the perception is out there that you're a threat or a problem or an abuser, um, that they'll discard you and they'll dismiss you and they'll cancel you. And they'll work hard as hell on some some high moral support superiority to ice you out. And with that, you know, I believe that's the real reason why Dave Chappelle is upset at Cat Williams. Like he's saying, you know, he you making us all look bad and you're only talking about everybody else. Well, what about you? And I think that stems from Cat Williams's opinion that the real reason why Dave Chappelle walked away from Comedy Central and that $50 million payday is because he realized that even after he worked his way into white spaces, that 
they didn't give a shit about him. Like, you can smoke as many cigars as you want. You can drink as much of that high-class wine as you want. But even after you give them your blood, sweat, and your energy, and the numbers from the Chappelle show, the first two seasons, crazy. Literally saved Comedy Central. You know, when the roast and the stand-up specials that people were doing just wasn't cutting it. The Chappelle show is what drew everybody to Comedy Central while it was on. Although Dave Chappelle tried to convince us that it was getting out of hand for him when people were stopping him in public a little bit too much about I'm Rick James, bitch, and what? Okay, and all that other stuff. It's like, no. No, 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 no. They they just don't... People that look like me are realizing that they're not being valued the same. Not from the gate, and not since you put so much time and energy into the same shit that they, they benefit from. So it's definitely time, like I said, on The Usual Suspects yesterday. 2024 is going to be the theme, is going to have the theme of matching the energy that people of privilege put out. Because here's the thing. Some, some people may be slow or quick on the uptake and realizing that you just can't do to people what you don't want done to you. And people don't get it until it happens to them. It's ultimately up to you whether you can take the consequence that comes with the choice. So while I haven't watched any of the current season of Real Housewives of Potomac, from the clips I've seen up until this point, there really is no point ever really returning until the reunion comes out. Because it's clear to me with... The Real Housewives of Potomac, I don't know why I didn't see this sooner, that these women are not really friends. At least with Married to Medicine, you know, for the most part, that these women are friends off camera. And that's the chemistry you can't fake for the cameras. Here with The Real Housewives of Potomac, I tried to get through, I think, the first episode. And I realized, okay... They're pretty much going to make the central focal point two things. A fabricated beef between the only two African wives, which it's it's so it's so fake because one of them is the new girl and the fact that these um Reality shows use, 
you know, the new girl or the new cast member or a possible new cast member to come on the show just to have some kind of fake beef or target one of the, the Real Housewives as their entry introduction to the show. It's like, ugh, what else do you got? Um, and then on top of that, you know, this whole uh, Robin Dixon and her roommate situation, you know, the the pushback or the feedback about it has gotten more traction than the actual situation, which it's so stupid. It's like if, if Robin and Juan are okay, why even keep pushing it? Um, so I, so I was minding my business this weekend and I saw a clip where it looks like, um, another clip, you know, Candace and Robin are at odds right now over the same shit that other wives have done to others, like the, the husbands and the family thing. So for those of you that are not aware, um, Somewhere between this season and last season, stuff was coming out about Robin's roommate, Juan. And I'm only laying it out that way because it's funny to me. Because there's no, there's no chemistry. Just like there was... I saw the same thing on Chicago Black Ink between Ryan and his, his baby mama that he made part of the show. It's like, from the neck down, they're both dead. There's no emotion or facial expression of any kind that shows interest or involvement with each other. Um, But anyway, it's at a point right now, it, it started off as, you know, there's stuff that's come out about one and... This this coworker woman at the laundromat and the nail salon and, you know, the hotel receipt and everything. And this season, from the clips I've seen, you know, Mia's kind of who's has has been stepping up as the season favorite and um, game recognizing game, asking the important questions on camera the way that you should. Right. Whereas. Candace is still harboring resentment and feelings towards Giselle and Robin, who are still bosom buddies, since Giselle came for Candace's husband last season, and I believe the season before. And and out the blue, like, Giselle made her whole existence last season about Candace's husband coming to talk to, wanting to talk to her in private. But when she related on camera, tried to insinuate or put out there that something inappropriate, he was trying to be down with some stuff. Then Ashley came out and said, oh, this DM to three o'clock in the morning sent to my friend about come down to the hotel, to the bar, blah, 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 blah. Candace never let that go. 
So they had a blow up at a group dinner. Candace is frustrated that the goalpost is constantly moving. Robin, the same person that has played a part or involved herself in a snow job against other people's relationships, Monique's uh, marriage with the tennis, uh, Monique's marriage to, to Chris and Chris addressing Robin and, you know, Robin has been on the receiving end of the exact same treatment before that she's put out and she doesn't like it. Robin is of the mindset that you've, you Candace have gone on social media and had so much to say about me and my family. You've gone to watch what happens live and had so much to say about me and my family. And how would you think that would make your friend feel? Quite as is kept, Candace is only saying the, the, the shit that needs to be said. Now, my unpopular opinion is that they're both out of line. You know, Robin, you're on a show to a reality show as now a housewife, a show that you've been on since you were just roommates with Juan, where you're supposed to show your real life. After filming a season... You decide to wait until you're behind the paywall on your podcast to give some tea, albeit tepid tea. You're, that's fucked up. Like, that's, that's like, so that's putting a middle finger up at what it means to be on a Housewives franchise Outside, you're like screwing up an opportunity to actually maintain your spot on the show because Quasi's cap out of all the cast members, Robin and Giselle have the least going on. And every year we're constantly asking, like, why is Giselle on the show and Robin can go? Giselle's not going anywhere because. Essentially, she's the reason why the Real Housewives of Potomac is on. She's a, she's literally like the Mariah of the group. If she could just stop with the the fake relationships and doing the Jamal thing, that that kind of shit, just show us more of the kids and being a mother. You haven't seen that much of the 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 pretend boyfriend in a while. And then with Robin, it's like we like it when she when it's her and the boys. It's it's so cute, but she doesn't have much going on, and it's like you're not you're not pulling your weight as a cast member. But also, it's like I get what Robin is saying, like. We, I'm, I'm, I'm done with it. I'm, I'm cool with you. I'm not, we're not friends. 
you know, I went up for you checking Giselle, questioning her, what what more do you want? You know, Candace, her downfall will always be her mouth. You know, when she gets really upset, she tends to go a little bit far, and she does. And she did with Robin, where she tried to, well, where she said that you you and Giselle, like, plotted against me and my husband. And it's like, well, no. We all saw the same thing where she actually took Giselle to task for doing and saying these things. And as a viewer, it's like, this is where we are as part of the Housewives franchise. Like, this is the best we have going on right now. And you can tell from my perspective that Candace wants so badly to be cool with the Green Eye Bandits because, believe it or not, they still have impact within the group. And Candace, Candace just has to be willing to stand alone because, you know, this whole, the manipulation, the gaslighting, all the things she's learned from her mother is going to to also be her downfall. Like you can't antagonize and be ruthless with your mouth and be hostile against folks and their situations that is ultimately up to them how much they want to share. And if they say that they, that what you're doing hurts them and Every single time he comes to the table with them, you play the victim. That's a problem. So in popular opinion, they're both out of line. I don't know if this show is really going to bring it the rest of the season. Grandom swears that it does. But I don't know. It's it's not giving what it used to give. I mean, Kwasi's cap, it hasn't been the same since Monique left. So although I've moved off of reality TV for a minute, like I don't watch that many shows as much, I still can't help but like recollect back on America's Next Top Model and my reverence for the first half of that show's run. You know, not the entire thing, but... Maybe the first six or so cycles of the show. So there I was. Even when y'all were revisiting that show with, I guess, new eyes. And realizing, or forgetting, that while it was also a reality show, they had a responsibility to produce drama and produce excitement. You know, as that's what makes a medium, a show, that shit was, while shit was crazy, it was meant to be, like, entertaining and to keep everybody's eyes glued to the television, which it did. But aside from that, 
you know, you had some really amazing um, models come off of that show. And, you know, it opened the door doors for a small group of them, some of which are still working to this day. So, case in point, Eva Pickford, or Ava Marcel, whom I've met before, before the pandemic, Baby Girl corrected me in the pronunciation of her name after she told me, oh, you you must work with white people. I was like, yeah, I do. Just happened to be at a conference in downtown Baltimore, which was in one of the hotels near the harbor. Walked, was walking to my table, looked over to my left, and I was thinking to myself, is that Eva? No, that can't be Eva. So, like, as I kept walking closer and closer to my table, I looked over my shoulder. I was like, I think that's really her. So, you know me, like, just like I was with Jada's mom and Busboys and Poets a couple months ago. I was being very, you know, apprehensive and trying not to be rude or anything. You know, while being a fan, you know, some people just tend to, like bum rush people's personal space i just tried to play it off like i was going to the bar and she just happened to be on my on my way there and i was like excuse me excuse me are you are you eva marcel pickford she was like yeah that's me and just like she is on tv she is in in person and I went back to table and was like, that's actually her. So before you knew it, people made the connection. So Eva and Takara stopped by the Big Tigger radio show. We were talking about how they got on the show. And it was very interesting because they went, they took the non-traditional approach. Approach I probably would have taken. And, um... Share their journey. So, I'm going to play the clip for you guys. Hold on. Dee bowled her way on the show. Oh, I think we all did. <laughs> you didn't know that? I went to, I went to a fake callback. <laughs> I said to a callback that I, w- I, wasn't, I wasn't there at the initial audition to be called back to. I drove. Who are you people? Well, okay. Okay. <laughs> Listen. Quick origin story for Top Model for me. I was in Atlanta. I found out they were doing auditions for Top Model. I went with my best friend, but I worked at Dillard's, and I couldn't be late for work. The line was crazy. It was at Lenox. I said, I'm not waiting for this line. So then I go go to work. Uh-huh. But then when I go home, I look it up. The audition's in Memphis, Tennessee. Okay. So I decided to drive my Nissan Sentra down to Memphis, Tennessee with a donut tire. We rolled wow. down there. Didn't have any money. Didn't have money to stay in a hotel room. Nothing. Freshened up in the bathroom. Walked in there. Um... I was number 30. I remember the number. They put a little number on my chest. So the lady asked me, she goes, so where do we first see you? I'm like, oh, I can't waste a sin on a real lie. So how are we going to pivot this like a fake lie? I said, well, I first saw y'all in Atlanta. Okay. Atlantic. Y'all were casting. And she's like looking like that. Michelle Mock. Michelle Mock. I do not see your face, but... Tell me something about yourself. And I d- literally just deboed my way through. And from there, they had me wait. And I made it semifinal rounds. And I ended up on the show. 
This one just said... Same too. They didn't call me back. I didn't get a call back. I said, oh, y'all got me messed up, girl. You went back anyway? I went back anyway. I flew, though. I went to New York. They had one in New York and one in Indianapolis. I said, uh, let me go to Indianapolis because New York would be too crowded, girl. I called a flight, showed up. They was like, where's your paperwork? That's where's the car, pictures? by you know, the way. You package. You mm -hmm. got to fill out all that stuff. Didn't that. Start printing out my stuff, start filling out my paper. Cause ingenuity. Period. Yes. They was like, when we get done seeing all the people we came here to see, we'll take you in like 30 at a time. And they brought us all in a room. They lined us all up. You know that's 30. You called it ingenuity? Yes. I just called her a pretty thug for that. You remember, I love hearing stories of how ambition and ingenuity. You know, I've never been on an audition, but I did kind of Debo my way into a work um, and uh, information technology career fair. I missed the I missed the deadline to apply. I honestly couldn't tell you how I came to know that there was one happening about 45 minutes away. Made my own um, name tag. I was an admin assistant at the time, an undergrad. So I already had supplies to kind of put the, the name tag together. Took time off. Took some resumes down there. And I was down there the rest of the day. I'm like, I got to do something. Because I don't want to be working as an admin assistant all my life. Still in the government, so, I mean, not too far off. So, I went down there, looked at, you know, the jobs and the different agencies. Talked to the people and looked it over and left with some postings. Didn't sign up for, like, on-hand interviews because I wasn't ready for that yet. But, you know, just the fact that I went and they took me in and it wasn't, they weren't as by the, they weren't by the book as you would think. Sometimes that's how you got to do it. Takara and Eva, Marcel, if they hadn't done that, they probably wouldn't be here. No, it's the theme is like survival. You know what I mean? Sometimes you have to crack some eggs to make an omelet. So this is Mr. Fox, the RFU's podcast. I hope you guys have learned a lot and um, continue to support and follow and subscribe at the I Refuse podcast. You know, we have a Twitter page. We have an Instagram. Continue to show love and listen and support this podcast, the I Refuse podcast, After Dark, and The Usual Suspects. Wherever you get your podcasts and wherever you get your music. And also, don't forget our YouTube channel at I Refuse Podcast. I might do a new video this week. I have to find some topics to discuss things are quiet right now but you know that could all change come tomorrow anyway this is mr fox the i refuse podcast and i'll catch you guys later